Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with experts in shark science and conservation to ask them your questions and basically help spread awareness and understanding of just how amazing these animals are and how diverse they are as a group. And, you know, try and build a community of shark nerds across the world. And I actually met one of you nerds on a boat yesterday in person in the middle of the sea on the west coast of Scotland. It was very surreal, but also really lovely as well. Sarah, hello and thank you for listening to the podcast. It was great to meet you in person and I hope that we get to meet more of you listeners in the future. We absolutely love hearing from you. Thank you so much to everyone who has sent their comments in about the podcast or got in touch to say hi. We really love hearing from you and finding out where you are in the world. Um, And I know we have listeners from all over the place. So we are starting to build that community of shark nerds, which is absolutely great. Now, on to today's show. I am so unbelievably excited for this one because it is one of my favourite topics to learn about and talk about and my guests today really are pioneers in their field who are making new and exciting and very important discoveries. I was lucky enough to get to pick the brains of deep sea shark researchers Paul Clerkin and Sofia Gratia Areña who are very kindly going to guide us on a journey into the deepest, darkest parts of our oceans to meet some of its incredible inhabitants. Now, the deep sea might seem like a vast, empty, cold void that doesn't support much life, and for a really long time, that was actually a common understanding until science and technology advanced enough and we were able to explore more of it. And we found out that not only does it support life, but a huge diversity of species, especially in particular areas like seamounts and hydrothermal vents, where specialist communities thrive, and we talk all about that in this episode. Those species include many sharks, rays and skates, who have fantastical adaptations to allow them to survive in such challenging conditions, like slingshot jaws, super-powered electroreception, and the ability to glow in the dark. And because much of the deep sea is still unexplored, we are discovering new species and new weird and wonderful adaptations all the time. And believe it or not, This is what Paul and Sophia do as their day jobs. They are both Save Our Seas project leaders working with deep sea fishermen to assess and identify the elasmobranchs that are brought up from the deep, some of them that are new to science. Paul's project focused on the communities around sea mounts that are kind of like underwater mountains, and he specialises in the descriptions and life histories of rare and newly discovered deep sea sharks. Sophia is a PhD candidate based at the University of Algarve and she works with deep sea crustacean trawlers in Portugal to evaluate the health of deep sea elasmobranchs that have been brought up as bycatch. She aims to better understand how deep sea trawling might impact the survival and condition of deep sea species through the Delasmop project. Both Sophia and Paul are using their research to spread awareness of the incredible species that we find in the depths and provide vital information as to the threats that they may face. And that's something that we discuss throughout this episode because human impacts are reaching into somewhere as 
otherworldly and seemingly inaccessible as the deep sea and affecting the sharks there. And that's what their work is all about. And they're looking to inform deep sea fisheries management with that new knowledge that they're getting. Paul and Sophia are so incredibly passionate about what they do. And it was such a joy to chat to both of them and learn more about their work, their drive to protect deep sea elasmobranchs, and of course, meet some of these awesome sharks. Just as a side note, please feel free to Google image search some of these species as we go, especially the goblin shark, which is a personal favourite of mine, and you will find out why in this episode. But yes, it's always worth Googling these species and having a look for yourself about how weird and alien-like they are, but also how amazing they are at the same time. Okay, I'm rambling, so without further ado, let's hop into the submersible and dive into our episode on deep sea sharks. Hello, Paul and Sophia, and welcome to the Whole Tooth Podcast. Hello, Isla. Hello, Paul. Thank you for having me. Hi, Isla. Hi, Sophia. And we're going to start with a question that I ask every guest on this podcast, and that is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? So, Sophia, I'm going to start with you. Okay, so I I had quite a few memorable experiences in the ocean, but uh, one of my favorites is from my early days uh, when I was diving in South Africa. I used to do, uh, I was an intern in a shark research center. And we did a trip, uh, I, I dove with many black tip uh, sharks. It was like my first time diving with sharks. And it was exciting and also scariest. scary because I didn't know what to feel. But I, I, I got that thrill to be experiencing this for the first time. But I had another, another memorable uh, moment. I don't want to, to, to be unfair. But uh, with uh, sun tiger sharks in North Carolina in a wreck, there were so many, like hundreds of them, and many shark teeth uh, hiding in the sand. So it was like an amazing playground. And uh, yeah, those one are one of my favorites. They are both brilliant experiences. So the second one is kind of almost like a treasure hunt combined with a shark dive at the same time, which sounds exactly really cool. And um, which yeah. shark research center was it in South Africa? It was Ocean Research. Ah, uh, okay. For great white sharks. It was amazing time. What a fantastic experience to have. Paul, how about you? What was your most memorable experience in the ocean? Yeah, I think probably um, one of the Mega Mouth projects that I was doing, uh, one of the times we uh, they were getting them off Taiwan and we were trying to um, tag them. So we went out and <clears throat> they fish at night. They put out the tags kind of at sunset and pull them up in, at sunrise. And so we were just waiting all night, uh, you know, for the, the nets to soak. And then um, they were pulling them in and it takes like, you know, hours. So we're just looking over the rail and then, you know, they got a Mega Mouth. It was, you know kind of crazy I remember being like almost not prepared like that's what we were there for but like I couldn't believe they got a mega mouth you know and then um uh I put on my my gear uh, I was just uh on snorkel and then I jumped in and you know it's it's black is pitch black it's just you know we're on a fishing boat in um in the middle of the night and then I have like my flashlight and um once the bubbles all clear my mask and I look up there's just like a gigantic mega mouth uh there yeah it was 
Amazing. Yeah. Uh, I think it was like a 23 footer. I forget what that is in, in meters, but it was a big fish. It was a really big shark. And, um, you know, I think also like the fact that it's like a mega mouth, just really uh, uncommon, um, you know, and poorly studied. So it was, that was really cool. And like, I, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, um, it's a mega mouth. Like I'm, you know, and I'm sure the mega mouth didn't have the same experience. Probably just like let me get out of here. So, but we were able to, <laughs> <laughs> we were able to tag it, and then um, we, we uh, released it, and um, it swam at the surface for like it was like ten in ten feet of water, and I just swam with it, um, and I would like you know hold my breath, dive down, kind of swim next to it and go back up. And I just did that for way too long. Um, I had the thought like you know no one would know there's a mega mouth right here. You know if. Uh, if I wasn't like swimming with it with a flashlight, but then, yeah, anyway, then the boat was way, way far away. So I had to swim back. It probably was a little bit irresponsible. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure they understood though. Yeah. I would, <laughs> I would completely get distracted by a mega mouth as well. That's insane. Um, I imagine not many people have been able to say they can say they've swum with a mega mouth, let alone see one in in real life like when you first started saying that I thought that you'd pulled it up onto the boat like it had been you know reeled up as as bycatch but to actually actually swim with it is just mental um and I imagine they look quite weird in real life in the best way possible because all the pictures that I've seen of them they look like some sort of like made up animal right. <laughs> it, it, it looks like if if a kid drew a shark and then, and then, you know, that's the shark. Yeah, they, um, they got kind of those goofy little snozzes and they're like, their, their heads, yeah, it's very kind of like round in the front. So their eyes are just like, they almost look like little googly eyes on the front. But, um, yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Sounds adorable. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are, they're pretty cute. And they're, they're, um, you know, they're, uh, actually a little bit more iridescent, like especially around the mouth and stuff like that. So they're, they're, you know, kind of pretty. Yeah. What a cool shark. What a special experience. Um, we talked a little bit about sharks sort of being, although we think they're really cool, a lot of people don't. And it's, you know, quite an unusual thing to to form a fascination for sharks and to even to go on to work with them, even still now. Um, and especially the species and the environments that you both work in, because you both work in deep sea research, you research deep sea sharks, the, the threats to deep sea sharks. Um, and, you know, in a world where, you know, a lot of people might study great white sharks or might study whale sharks, I was interested to know sort of what took you on that career path. Um, so, Paul, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you first. How did you how did you get involved in deep sea research? What took you on that journey? Hmm. OK, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, you're right. I think the deep sea sharks is like reserved for like the hardcore shark nerds, you know, like. Uh, lots of shark fans are like white sharks and like oh yeah hammerheads and whale sharks but a lot of the deep sea sharks um, you know people don't don't know about and a lot of them we don't have that much information um, on so that's part of like my, my fascination was when I started you know in my uh, you know earlier years in undergrad and stuff learning more about sharks and you know uh, kind of beyond just the shark fan stuff but like you know learning uh, some actual actually you know studying sharks um, yeah, learning that there are so many different species and how diverse sharks can be was um, really interesting. And that's something I always think uh, people are not really aware how, how many species there are and, you know, the different shapes and sizes and, their, you know, the different uh, adaptations and roles that they have. 
Um, so I was really interested in that, um, which, you know, kind of led into the deep sea. I was always interested in, you know, deep sea as being kind of that um, kind of alien environment on the planet, especially if you think it's most of our planet's livable space is um, deep sea, and we just know very little about it. Uh, so yeah, I was interested in deep sea sharks and, um, you know, kind of the less known sharks. And that segued into uh, me working on a commercial boat that they were deep sea trawling in the Indian Ocean. Um, and they let me go along and just collect their bycatch. And we got a bunch of weird sharks um, and we got a large number of new species. And that's where it was really exciting. It was um, about a dozen new species and it was, that's about one third of the species that we encountered. So like one out of three species was new to science, which is crazy. That is that is mental. Yeah, I when I was researching you for the podcast, I did read that, and and I thought, you know, because that was quite early on in your scientific career, and most people, you know, wait decades to you know find a new species, and then all of a sudden you were confronted with, uh, with multiple of them. Um, just such a such a cool field and such a new field as well, um, and we will be talking about some of those species. Uh, later on in this episode, um, which I am so excited to get into. Um, but Sophia, how about you? How, is, how did you get into deep sea research? So it was kind of an accident because um, I, I always work with sharks. And when I came to Portugal, I'm originally from Brazil. I came to Portugal to do my master's here. And in my university, no one was working with sharks at that time. So I came to my supervisor and said, okay, I want to work with sharks. And he said, no, but we don't have that uh, here. No one is working with sharks. You, you can work with fish and other stuff. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to. I don't want to deviate from my path. I want to continue my work with sharks. And he said, okay, uh, so I will put you in a bottom trawler, um, a crustacean bottom trawler that we, we have a contact with. And... Then I, um, I had to create, a, we have to create a project for that uh, purpose. So we are going on a station bottom trawler, what can we find? So the deep sea sharks are a huge bycatch on the crustacean bottom trawler. They are not targeted by any fisheries, uh, especially because in Europe they are protected. There are some species that are protected. So uh, we, we did, uh, I did find quite a lot of interesting and sad things as well. So um, what happens that uh, I, I, I finished my master uh, wanting to know more because there were huge gaps in knowledge still for my area, for this area of research, fisheries and, and deep sea sharks. Uh, and I, 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 I could not, uh, uh, I could not uh, pass through it. So uh, when I, when I uh, was thinking about my PhD, I said, okay, I, I will continue to do this. I don't like to see sharks uh, suffering. I see many dead sharks. Uh, it's really, it's really frustrating. But at the same time, like uh, it was necessary. Uh, and I think, okay, so I need to, <laughs> I need to just do it, and I need to to gather most information that I can uh, on this on these animals. So I continue to work with sharks, and now I'm working as well with deep sea skates. So cool, yeah. <laughs> cool, oh amazing! Um, I had a little nerd out uh, a couple of weeks ago about a deep sea skate uh, that we. I, I don't know if you work with this species. It's the flapper skate or the giant skate, I think it's called. Um, 
and there's a beach in Orkney so it is a deep sea species but there's a beach in Orkney right at the top of Scotland where you can find hundreds of these egg cases and they're like this the egg cases are like the size of your head they're huge such a cool species so I had a little no doubt about that but um but yeah such important work that you do because it was definitely my assumption and I know it's an assumption of um, you know, quite a lot of people that deep sea sharks are relatively safe because they're, they are so deep um, and a lot of people think they're inaccessible. Um, but, you know, that's not often the case. And that's something we're going to talk about a little bit later on. But yeah, you guys are doing such fascinating, interesting, but also, you know, super important research as well, which I'm so excited to learn about. Thinking about the deep sea, um, I thought it would be a good place to start to talk about what we mean when we say the deep sea, what it's actually like down there. Um, and Paul, you mentioned earlier that there's just so much, so much of our world is the deep sea. So much of it is unexplored. It actually hurts my brain to think about the numbers and how deep things are and what that is an equivalent to, you know, on a surface level. But I think quite a common misconception again is that the deep sea is actually you know a very barren environment that doesn't have much life in it at all you know let alone sharks and Sophia you spend a lot of your time as you said on the on the crustacean trawlers analyzing species that get you know brought up from the deep sea um, and I was interested to know you know is there any truth to that statement that the deep sea doesn't have much in the way of life? Uh, yes and no, I think. Um, I think this is most due to the misconception that because there is no photosynthesis happening below 1,000 meters depth or so, uh, life cannot sustain in those type of, of environments. And that's far from the truth. Actually, we do have some muddy flats, uh, which we don't find a lot going on there but there are also areas with high productivity such as vents uh, seamounts sucking uh, sunking whale carcasses uh, dolphin carcasses uh, which concentrates uh, a significant amount of uh, life around it so yes yes and no <laughs> yeah so there can be big open spaces but there are also areas where life concentrates um and I just wondered if I could pick up on something that you said there about the whale carcasses. Like, how how does that work? Can you explain that to somebody who maybe isn't familiar with, with that whole process? Sure. Uh, so whale carcasses can beach or they can sink. Uh, not uh, all carcasses sink. But when they do, they sink up to the depth where is the limit depth of that area. And with that... A lot of scavengers uh, take uh, opportunity to feed on, it's like a feast, it's a giant carcasses that can stay there for, there for days or even months or years. So um, scavengers like uh, octopus, brittle stars, starfishes, uh, sea urchins, uh, a lot of animals can feed from that and even sharks can feed on that as well. So uh, it's, a, it's a good place to concentrate uh, uh, life in, in, a deep, uh, in the deep ocean as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's some really cool videos that you can actually find on YouTube from the deep sea submersibles that where researchers have actually planted 
uh, either, or they've found a whale carcass or they've planted, I think one was an alligator that they planted on the seafloor to um, uh, see what species kind of arrived on those carcasses. So yeah, it's a really cool thing that not many, that I definitely didn't think about before I started learning about it. Um, and of course, one of the other habitats that you mentioned were seamounts. And I know, Paul, that you've done a project that looks at the different shark species around seamounts. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about their ecosystems because they are, they are so cool. Yeah, I think seamounts are really cool. Um, and that's probably a biased opinion. But um, yeah, I think they are really cool. They, they, are, um, you know, uh, they make up relatively a small amount. I forget what it is, a couple, only a couple percent of deep sea. But um, you know, we estimate that there could be 100,000 seamounts in the ocean. And um, they are cool. They kind of, they add structure. They function kind of like underwater islands. Uh, they are, you know, um, kind of just shaped like a mountain. And they're separated by, you know, great depths. And a lot of the time, these islands are kind of uh, separated and you can have different species um, between different seamounts that are relatively close. Um, you know, so it's, it's a hotspot for, for biodiversity. And um, they also, uh, food winds up concentrating on them. Um, because like plankton, when, uh, they go up and down through the water column and uh, the current's moving them. When they go down, the, the plankton get concentrated on the seamount and then they go up and moves on and you kind of get like this little conveyor belt kind of like cookie cutter thing where you get more food um, at, at the seamounts. And because of that, you have, um, yeah, more, it can support more life, you get more species. And so um, they are kind of like little, little, um, uh, little underwater islands separated by these depths of the ocean mm -hmm. and there that can I mean that can even lead up to quite close to the surface right so not the seamount itself but the effect of it because I know that you get some areas where you see really large aggregations of sharks for example um in shallower waters but that's because it's still above a seamount oh yeah yeah I mean um some of the seamounts can be relatively close to the surface one in the, in the Indian Ocean that we would fish around Walter Shoal it's it's uh it gets within 27 meters of the surface which is very you know shallow um yeah but you, you get um concentrations of uh you know fish um larger fish and sharks so you kind of get uh everything kind of aggregating around there and you have your own little ecosystem and they can be pretty different. A lot of the time, uh, you know, when I was working with the commercial fishers and they would uh, switch seamounts for, you know, the sake of fishing, but it would very often be a, a pretty different um, species composition, even at just, you know, uh, a seamount right next to another seamount could be pretty different. And a lot of the time we get, spe like, you know, uh, like new species at um, just, you know, next to these seamounts. One of them, we had two cat sharks and they were both new species. Um, and they look similar, but they only they were separated by these seamounts, um, and it was it was not a great not a great distance, but it was uh, a great depth between them. Yeah, so really, really are like islands then in that way, like how you describe them. In that you can also have species that are kind of endemic to even that particular uh, that particular seamount, just like you would an island on land. That's so cool. Um, and we talked a little bit about there being these areas where you get really high productivity and you get lots of different species so you know the seamounts like you said the whale carcasses the hydrothermal vents areas like that but I wondered if we could talk a little bit about what the the deep sea what kind of conditions so say you are a deep sea shark what kind of conditions are you working with down there 
I think one of the um, the big things that you, I mean, besides like the temperature and the pressure and everything, one of the, the things that's common in the deep sea, especially um, in like less dense areas, is just um, uh, food scarcity. There's not a lot of prey items, um, so it's kind of a arms race between you know sharks to detect prey and prey to avoid being detected. It's kind of you know, uh, I think most, probably most fish in the ocean, um, especially in the deep sea, they, they want to see the prey, but they don't want anything else to see them. Mm, yeah, that's, that's really interesting because that brings me kind of on to my next point a little bit in that obviously food is so scarce in the deep sea. So a lot of, you know, deep sea species, but it's also very dark down there. So a lot of deep sea species must rely quite heavily on their sense of smell and also on their um, electroreception because you don't want to miss food when it comes across you <laughs> in the deep sea you definitely don't want to miss the opportunity for a meal and I just wondered are there any kind of general adaptations that these sharks have to help them thrive in that sort of difficult environment so we have a lot of cool adaptations like bioluminescence um, from lantern sharks to uh, you know to uh, kind of create sh counter shading so they match the ambient light and they can't be detected but then there's also uh, there's fish that do that, and then there's uh, a lot of deep sea sharks have kind of special lenses on their eyes. So even though the the prey could be blending into the surroundings, they can they can kind of sense that it's a different kind of light and, and find them still. So it's kind of a uh, yeah that kind of thing, or being able to um, eat large prey items. So if you encounter something that's really big, you can still eat it. Um, you know, just trying to maximize. Uh, encounters with prey when you can yeah so as paul said uh, beautifully uh they have uh, they have eyes uh really well adapted like one of my favorite shark is the kite fin shark because he the eyes of the kite fin shark is like a cartoon eye it's a it's really beautiful and large long eye um they have the, the eyes to to capture the smallest uh, uh, lights uh, from the bioluminescence of other animals but it, it can play as well a role on finding finding mates or to camouflage from predators as well um some sharks as uh, paul said uh, they have bioluminescence so they can uh, camouflage or they can use it to find mates or to 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 attract uh, some prey um, and also, like uh, other species, other uh, other shark species and coastal species, they have huge uh, liver full of squalene, which helps them keep their buoyancy um, um, stable. Cool. And Paul, do you, do you have anything to to add? Oh, I mean, I, I think yeah. One of the things, the, the eyes. You know, they um, they have large reflective like beautiful eyes um you get like blues greens and like yellow eyes depending on the different species and they're just like yeah they're just kind of very brilliant um bright eyes and that's because you know they have the reflective layer to maximize uh the amount of light that they can detect um and then also like the different color for detecting um different species uh, and then yeah the large livers is an interesting one um that that helps them kind of stay buoyant and uh, a lot of these sharks, um, because they're living in a low energy environment, um, the livers can store energy, but also helps them stay buoyant. And then they can slow, uh, swim very kind of slowly. So interestingly, a lot of these like, you know, sharks, which are top predators in these deep sea areas are just very flabby, you know, and um, yeah, just kind of like a water balloon, sometimes flabby. And 
uh, they, they, they likely um, can cruise very slowly and quietly and sneak up on, um, on uh, you know, prey items. I've, uh, I've actually encountered some, some uh, sleeper sharks, um, uh, long-nosed velvet dogfish and, um, and Portu Portuguese dogfish with um, uh, mammal meat in their stomachs. You know, something with hair on it was probably a seal, but... You know, it could have found um, it could have found a, a carcass, but like it also, you know, they've been kind of um, kind of theorized that they can, you know, slowly just kind of glide up on something and take a bite and swim off. Right. Okay. Yeah. And sleeper sharks—that's the same family that Greenland sharks come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Just because of like how slow they move and how slow they how slow they live life. Um, and I did want to talk about some of those species that we can find in the deep sea because I think a lot of people will be surprised just how many that you can find. So I'm not expecting you to reel off a full list of all the deep sea species <laughs> that exist. Um, but I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of them. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's um, a group of sharks called the lantern sharks, and I think they're very interesting. For the most part, they're... Uh, less than a meter long. A lot of the time they're about half a meter long. Um, and uh, most of them, as the name kind of implies, uh, most of them can generate light. And they do this along their, their bellies, their flanks, and then their, their spines. They have sp two spines on their back. Uh, and they use that, the, the light along their bellies, they use for counter-illumination to, to match the ambient light to try to hide from predators. Uh, the, the flanks, uh, the, on their sides, they have these little um, photophore markings, which we think they use to communicate uh, within their species. Um, they've done studies and they've found that, um, spe that, that species have this little window in their eye to, to help. This is like a species-specific lens to help identify other uh, lantern sharks of the same species. And, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and then they have the spines, and the, the thought with the illumination on the spines is just a warning to predators, you know, just to show off that they, they're armed and dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, what cool things. And lantern sharks, like, um, I mean, I don't know much about them other than they can glow in the dark um, and they find them in the deep sea, but... I've always understood them to be quite small as well, or is that like a is that a huge generalization? Um, yeah, there's about fifty different species. Uh, some of them can be very small, um, you know, like maybe I think it's eight inches. Uh, and then I think the, the largest, I believe, the largest lantern shark on record is the southern lantern shark, and it was ninety three centimeters, maybe ninety three point something. Right. Yeah, but still in shark terms, not. Oh yeah, <laughs> massive. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, really cool. And Sophia, okay, your turn. <laughs> <laughs> so I have uh, so many sh deep water sharks that I would like to acknowledge, but I think um, I like the uncommon sharks that we don't find, like we find once in a lifetime, because they are super rare. But at the same time, for example, the goblin shark uh, and the frill shark, we find them really not often at all, very, very, uh, very little. Um, we just found like in around more than 3,000 individuals, we had one goblin shark. And it was like a female, a large female, and she died on board. She was really distressed. She was like uh, 2.5 meters long. She was big, but not the biggest one. 
uh, and she died. And what I did, I uh, I cut her head. I I collected the the most of it I could do. I could, but I collect her head, and then I use her jaws to to do a, a educational um, environmental educational activity with kids uh, for Save Our Seas uh, project. Um, and yeah, I think the, the goblin shark for me is uh, one of the most, uh, when you think about uh, sh uh, deep sea sharks, you think about uh, alien-like sharks. They are not uh, at all, look, they don't look like the, the coastal sharks, right? They are smaller sharks. But we have quite common sharks. For example, the cat sharks, they are really common and they lay eggs. Uh, we have uh, we have also the lantern shark, as uh, Paul said, which is also really common here in our fishing. So those are the most common species of sharks and the dogfish sharks as well. So we have uh, a lot of different shark species. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm so glad that you mentioned the goblin shark there because you sent me you sent me a picture of you with those jaws that you talked about earlier and your head inside the jaws um, and I love goblin sharks like you said they are so weird they look like they've been made in some sort of 80s sci-fi movie um, and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of their some of their adaptations because they are particularly odd. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the goblin shark, they have a, like a, a long, a, a long nostril, a snout, a very long snout, and I dissect it, uh, and it looks, and it's just like a really long uh, cartilage thing and a flappy uh, uh, skin around it with tons of uh, of uh, ampullae of lorenzini on it and when you when you when you squeeze it it's it's just the jelly like uh, uh, coming out of the of the ampullae of lorenzini nice so we don't know much about them because uh, as well because they are really uh, they are very uncommon because uh, they are supposed to live in depths where the fishermen don't go, right? But uh, fishermen here, uh, bottom trawlers, they can only go up to 800 meters depth. But we caught goblin sharks when we were trawling uh, 1,300 meters depth. And it was illegal. But again, uh, fishermen, um, they were doing their uh, fishing. So I'm not there to to tell them what to do. I'm just there to, to do the research. And unfortunately, sometimes they, they don't do uh, legal stuff. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's an opportunity to get a really weird creatures. And it was in, during this trip that we caught uh, some really weird sharks. Uh, the sailfin rough shark as well. Uh, we know very little about it. But uh, yeah, the goblin shark, the, the mouth of the goblin shark uh, dislocate from the, 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 the jaw dislocate from the cranium to, to collect the prey. So um, 
I don't know much about it because we already have like uh, 18 species of sharks that I'm trying to understand little by little. So it's a lot of uh, sharks <laughs> to to go into details, and I could I cannot go into details on on there. But if if Paul knows about uh, more about the goblin shark, he's more than welcome to to talk a bit <laughs> because I really I just know that they are really weird creatures and very very very. For me, they are really cute creatures. <laughs> Definitely unique, right? Yeah. Cute in their own way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think you covered all. Of, I mean, it's, they they really do have like that weird appearance. They look, you know, uh, on on real. The, you know, that they're they have that big kind of scary mouth, like uh, Sophia says, protrudes out. They can slingshot it out. They actually have a, a ligament, a special ligament that's designed just to keep the jaws from getting ripped off their face when they shoot them out. Um, but uh, and the the image that we all see is the the goblin shark with its jaws protruding. But um, when they're alive and in the water, those jaws are actually up in their in their mouths, and they're a lot kind of more uh, like a long dagger like shape. Um, yeah, they have that long rostrum and those little beady eyes and big flabby bodies. So they're interesting. And uh, I guess you know, Sophie, you probably can tell us more about the the color. Um, but you know, in life, they have kind of a unique kind of pinkish color with blue fins, right? They are they are pinkish, uh, and their skin is really smooth. Like uh, it's not it's not fragile skin, but it's uh, um, you cannot tell it has scales. I don't know. I think it has, but I, you cannot you cannot see that and they are very pinkish and the nostrils they have really interesting nostrils uh when i dissect it uh, me and my uh my uh, student we dissect it and the nostrils inside they are they have like this huge uh in the cranium this huge structure f only for the nostrils and it has a lot of lamellae inside and it's like a, it's really interesting so the nostrils must must be must play a really important role as well in their diet in finding food or or something like that my next question about deep sea sharks is do we know anything about the, the role that they have in their ecosystem um so, you know, do, do we know kind of like what role they play? Um, so, Paul, I'll, I'll come to you first on this one. Um, so a lot of the deep sea sharks, we don't have a lot of information on. Um, about half of all deep sea sharks are data deficient, so we have very little idea of them. Um, but, you know, most sharks are uh, keystone predators in the environments that they inhabit. So, you know, we kind of theorize that uh, deep sea sharks could be, even the, the small flabby ones could be uh, top-down predators on these seamounts and, um, you know, they could be the biggest, baddest fish out there even if they're, you know, small and flabby. Um, but yeah, they usually have, um, you know, an important role as predators uh, regulating species below them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So even uh, deep sea sharks kind of flabby, flabby and slow works for them <laughs> yeah you know and we don't know a lot about these seamounts so um out of the uh the theorized 100,000 um seamounts that we think exist there um we mostly know of their position based on satellites um picking up different heights of water over them because of the gravity um so that's why you can go into google maps and see these seamounts but we've actually never been there to study them we've only 
studied uh, about 300 seamounts. Isn't that crazy to think about? Um, that is mad. Yeah, and that's, yeah. So we know very little about these seamounts or sharks' roles in these seamounts. But even like the, you know, a little shark, um, we got these little cat sharks, they're a new species, and they were adorable. They had these little squished up faces and these big water balloon bellies, and I call them, I called them QDI, was what I said I was going to name them. <laughs> um, <laughs> Please tell me you did. But uh, I didn't. <laughs> Unfortunately, we did not. No, we came up with a, a serious grown-up scientist name for him. <laughs> but, um, but you know, we don't. They could have been the top predator. You know, QDI could be an adorable uh, top-down predator on some of these seamounts. Because you know, if it's all smaller fish, they could be, uh, yeah, top dog. Yeah, yeah, have a really important role. And um, um, Sophia, did you have anything you wanted to to add to that? Yeah, yeah. For my masters, I studied the diet of some deep water species. Uh, through a stable isotope analysis, so we found out that uh, the usual, like uh, um, and there are some sharks that they are, they are more of um, of um, generalist feeders, and there are others that are more selective feeders. But uh, there are also others that are scavengers. But I I don't know that because I did for you to study the the. The diets through stable isotopes, you need to collect a small amount of muscle from the potential prey. So I cannot collect a whale carcass uh, uh, muscle. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, but we do know that these sharks are can be also scavengers because uh, as we as we said, uh, the deep sea can be very very nospit place without much to to find and some animals they just take opportunity on whatever they find right so uh but i think uh, but like any other sharks they are they can be like uh, very relevant in the habitat they live in because uh either by predating or either by being predated by other species but what i see from my studies that they 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 occupy high trophic positions in the in the food web so so i think uh, i think they they play a, a relevant uh, uh, role on that but that's what i'm also uh, uh, studying in my phd as well i'm trying to go deeper into this into their roles yeah and find out more and it'll be so fascinating to to see what you what you both find uh, kind of moving forwards in this like really sort of relatively new and you know very unexplored fields um and obviously the deep sea it's so tens of thousands of kilometers you're talking about in some areas um not famously not that easy for humans to get to um so it's not as if you can just pop on your scuba gear and and head down and, and do some research so how do you research sharks in the deep sea i know you've been talking about this a little bit so, so sophia i'll come to you first on that one so my research as i said yeah uh, earlier i go on board a fishing vessel and i um, and whatever they catch in the net i try to separate sharks so when they are sorting the sharks i uh, they are sorting the the crustaceans i collect the sharks put them in a tank and then uh, i i do this i don't I don't increase their their shark uh, catchability. I just I just I'm just there um, randomly to catch some samples and to 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 analyze the sharks because 
for you to 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 study these animals, you cannot put them in a tank in an aquarium, right? Because the the deep sea is such a difficult environment to work with, um, and the reason is that you cannot create a, a near a closer environment in earth uh, in in land as the as the deep sea. So for you to study these sharks, you either have to collect them with a net or, or long lines and whatever, or even with uh, ROVs or AUVs. Um, but those are different type of analysis that I don't, I'm not doing uh, for my work. But for my work, I really need to put my hands on them. So unfortunately, that's the only way I can, uh, I can study them. Yeah, but it makes it does make sense though because you know while people are fishing in those areas, it, ma- it makes sense to take advantage of having a look at what kind of species come up with the species that they're targeting, right? Um, exactly. I try. I try. I try not to. Uh, what we what we do is that we put them in a tank, so we diminish their their time on air and we release the live ones all the live sharks so we don't stress them out so we just release them but uh, there are some sharks that are really really in poor conditions and uh, i don't think they will survive so one of the aspects that we are finding is more or less like this uh, 90 percent of the sharks die because of this fishery yeah yeah that's that's a lot and it's a lot it's very sad, but also not surprising because, as you said, you know they're coming up from an area that's so different to what our existence is like. So you know, high pressure, different temperature, um, and they're getting pulled up. I imagine relatively quickly as well. So they're not yeah. really getting that time to adjust. No, no, no not at all. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a shock for them, either in terms of temperature changes, in terms of pressure changes, and also inside their bodies, their organs. Uh, they get barotrauma because of the pressure changes. So yeah, so ju- just like just like being a diver, like if anyone listening is exactly. a scuba diver, like you're always taught, do not go up to the surface uh, really fast because it can do bad things to your insides. <laughs> and yeah, then, exactly. you know, imagine that for a shark that is way deeper than we could even go on our own human scuba diving equipment. Um, and Paul, exactly, yeah. how about you? Do you have similar research methods or um, do you do something slightly different? Or what, what, how do you research sharks in the deep sea? Um, I, I think, you know, my, my method's similar to Sophia. I'm, you know, it, I'm lucky to have a relationship with um, deep sea trawlers uh, in the Indian Ocean and um, it, it works out well. I, I think it's a little bit strange, and uh, Sophia mentioned it too, like for someone to be passionate about sharks and have to deal with dead sharks all the time, it's not really why you got into it, but you wind up being able to answer a lot of questions that, you know, that you have and that will help the species. Um, but yeah, working with the deep sea trawlers, it's, um, it's so, it's just a, a useful collaboration because they're going out and they're fishing anyway. Uh, and so they have funding, you know, they have commercial funding. If, if Mir and Sophia wanted to charter a research boat to go out to the deep sea for three months with a crew, like it would be crazy um, how much money you would need to like rent a boat and hire a crew. So that uh, by itself is very valuable. Plus they have a, a lot of uh, knowledge, you know, they, uh, they're fishing these deep sea seamounts. And if I went out with my boat, I would get the net stuck for sure. First, first, first time I put the net out, I would like lose it. Um, but they know how to fish, they know the area. 
uh, and they're really, um, you know, they're experts at, at what they're doing. So to be able to piggyback on on their their fishing activity and and catalog the sharks and collect data um, is really valuable. Um, you know, even if it's just you know, I, I, I've been talking to um, some people and even just like knowing what species are coming from where out there is a, is a big step um, for, for some of these groups that want to like, you know, have distribution of, of species. Uh, then, you know, relative number and maturity and all that stuff is important. Um, and then also because, you know, we can't go down there, you know, um, sending cameras down and anything like that is a, a useful way to kind of peek into the deep sea and see what these habitats are like. But I mean, you made a really good point there um, in that these fishermen are out there every single day. They're seeing the species every single day as they're coming up in the nets and they've got some idea of, you know, where to go, um, possibly what kind of species you might see where, as you said, and it's really valuable information that especially for the deep sea, we don't necessarily have. Um, so, and because it's such a huge, vast area, you do need some sort of idea of where to, where to start. Um, and as it's, uh, I imagine it's really sad to see, you know, a lot of dead sharks on board, but also without that, you wouldn't have been able to identify new species. We wouldn't know about their physiology. We wouldn't know about some of the adaptations that they have. And um, so I imagine it's a, a bit of a double-edged sword for, for both of you. But one thing that is slightly worrying is, like you mentioned before, is that there are threats to deep sea sharks. Um, we, you know, we are seeing deep sea fishing potentially having an impact, as you said earlier, Sophia, and what you both do is work on those vessels and, and see the animals that are being brought up as bycatch, even if they're not being targeted directly. Um, and I wanted to ask, uh, so I'll come to you, Paul, first. And, you know, why is it so important to understand these kind of rarest species and to keep discovering them as kind of like a first part of the question? And the second part is, you've already touched on this a little bit, but you, for your project, you formed a collaboration between lots of different partners, um, including some of the deep sea fisheries. Um, and I wondered how are you using your data from that kind of rare, from those rare species to help inform management of those fisheries? A big question, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no. So I'll, I'll try to answer it in, in some parts. Uh, I think, you know, um, the basic taxonomy stuff that we did out there, describing the new species, is um, is a very important job. You know, I, I think sound taxonomy is important for uh, future research. You know, being able to, to discern which species or which is important to put together any life history information, but also just having a name and knowing that the sharks are there is important because they're still um, exposed to the same anthropogenic fishing pressures from you know being caught as bycatch, uh, whether we know they're there or not. So just knowing that they exist, um, having a way to tell them apart and, you know, a name to which we can communicate with other scientists, fishers, or policymakers is um, an important first step. I think it's kind of sometimes, um, you know, overlooked by people doing uh, more in-depth analysis, but, you know, just knowing what's there and uh, being able to tell them apart is important because uh, sometimes you get people doing analysis um, and they'll include multiple species by accident because they'll be hard to tell apart or one species will be cryptic, uh, maybe unknown, and it, it totally can mess up, um, you know, your life history estimates if you're including two different species. Um, and then, you know, there's also the, the basic life history stuff that we put together um, while we're out there and that's um, 
some of the groups that I've been working with, they've been saying it's, you know, probably one of the more, you know, in-depth explorations of the sharks in the area. So I think that's a good baseline for a lot of these things. And we're continuing to work with the fishers and then also um, some of the, um, like, uh, RFMOs and uh, NGOs on uh, how to get more information. You know, the fishers are going out there. Um, and a lot of these boats hire um, an observer or voluntarily um, contribute data. But if it's, um, you know, if the taxonomy is an issue or if they're limited in, in the data that they can collect, sometimes they, they don't yield a lot of stuff. So I think um, continuing to work with them and maybe uh, creating this pipeline of data from the fishers would really help, even if we can just get, you know, what species they're, looking, they're catching where and what number, that's, um, that's a lot of information. Yeah, definitely. And because, uh, I mean, if you don't know what's there, you don't know, you know, what you might lose um, by, you know, over-exploiting that, that area of that population. And I imagine a lot of the fisheries are actually really interested to find what sort of weird species they're, they're sort of bringing up on board. So it might be quite interesting for them as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, there is always like the kind of the thought, like, what if, you know, one of these species goes extinct before we even discover it or name it. Um, and I've been lucky with these fishers. I know um, people have different relationships with, you know, policymakers and fishers, but they are uh, very interested in, in what's there. And they've kind of voluntarily let me let me go on the boats um, and they let me collect anything I want. So they're not, you know, they're not trying to hide any of this stuff. They, they do want to know uh, what the species are and, you know, what, what we can do. Yeah, yeah, that's really positive. That's really that's really nice to hear. Um, and Sophia, I've got a similar question to you, um, which is, can you tell our listeners about the Delasmot project? I don't know if I'm saying that right. Please correct me if I'm saying that wrong. That's how I read it. Um, and how are you working with those crustacean trawlers to improve their practices through the project? Okay, so you co- you 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 mentioned correctly, Delasmot because it's deep. See Elasmobranchs of Portugal. Um, so in the LASMOP, our goal is to better understand about this whole interaction among the bottom trawlers and the deep sea Elasmobranchs. But to, due to the enormous gaps in knowledge, uh, we also need to understand about uh, aspects of their ecology and biology as well, right? So by understanding their interactions with the and the potential harms with the bottom trawlers, uh, we may be able to propose uh, and improve fishing practices or handling on board of uh, handling of the fishermen on, on board these uh, trawlers. So um, so we have a better a better chance to either reduce their bycatch or either improve their survival when they are discarded. And by that, we are working in another project, a parallel project, which is called NREP. And this project is, uh, we, we put a camera in the fisherman vessel and that created not a good relationship among us and the fishermen because it's a way of electronic monitoring right now. And, and this project is also based on my PhD. So we are working with deep sea sharks and skates. Um, and we are working with a company called OLSPS. Uh, they are a fishing uh, company. They are fi- not a fishing company. They are an f- uh, electronic um, fishing logbook company. So they developed this uh, uh, fishing logbook where we can put 
the sharks that we are collecting, the area we are collecting these sharks. And in the future, we want to say to fishermen to avoid high uh, bycatch uh, concentration areas uh, of sharks and skates. So with that, we plan to de decrease the bycatch of sharks because in theory, no fisherman wants to collect sharks because uh, right now, like around 40% of those species are protected in Europe, so they cannot land these species. Um, so it's, it's important for them to find ways to avoid uh, uh, bycatch areas of sharks and skates. So that's what we are trying to do. We are trying to, it's a lot of, it's a lot of goals we have at the moment, but they are all, uh, um, they are all for conservation of deep sea sharks and skates, ecology and biology of deep sea sharks and skates. I am at risk of taking up so much of your time because I could honestly ask you about deep sea and deep sea sharks all day, but I will not do that. Um, so I'm just going to bring it to a close. Um, and I just wondered if there was one thing that you could, or one thing that you wish people knew about deep sea sharks, what would it be? So Paul, I'll come to you first. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I, I would always like people to, to learn about sharks is that, um, that they're very diverse, you know, that there's, there's a lot of different kinds of sharks out there. They're all very interesting. Uh, and a lot of them need, um, you know, our help, even if that's just uh, learning more about them. I, I think a lot of shark fans are enamored with white sharks, which, you know, is great. It makes sense. It's fascinating. But I think a lot of people are just not aware of these other species. And because of that, um, you know, I think most people don't realize that a huge amount of deep sea sharks are not pr protected. Um, you know, we don't even collect data on them a lot of the time when they're caught on fishing boats. So, um, yeah, sharks are very diverse and there's a large, uh, portion of the, of the species that are just kind of neglected because they're so poorly known, um, by scientists, but also, and also the, the public. Mm -hmm. That's a really good one. And like you said, like we said earlier, if you don't know what there is, how do you, you know, these species could go extinct without us even knowing they, that, that they existed, which would be really, really sad. And Sophia, how about you? What would be your one thing that you would tell people about deep sea sharks? Uh, that they are equally as important as coastal species that we are aware of. Aware of. Um, and they are, um, they are fragile. Uh, we don't know much about them and we need to. Uh, before they, they, before it's too late. Like uh, um, they are not being in Europe. They are not being physically targeted for uh, for the fisheries, but they are a huge amount of the bycatch. So they are still being being fished, and they are not accounted for, uh, which is which is a shame because as 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 we can see, uh, they are they are dying. And they, they don't survive the, this uh, activity, at least for bottom troll. They don't survive after they're, they're, they're caught. Um, so, yeah, I think people should know that uh, these sharks can be overexploited even if they are not targeted. Yeah, yeah. Very, very, very important that we care about them and we show them some love. And they are very cute in their own way. And I agree with both of you on that. Um, and my final question is if you could be any species of shark, ray or skate in the world, 
what would you be and why? <laughs> uh, so I was thinking a lot about this question because it's, for me, it's really difficult to choose. <laughs> I have many uh, favorite species because uh, if I want to be a shark species, I want to be my favorite. Uh, and I don't have a favorite, but uh, I, I think the kite fin shark is really cool because I really enjoy his eyes, uh, his cartoon eyes, and because of the bio bioluminescence uh, that tricks the predators and is the largest uh, vertebrate known to have bioluminescence. So I would go for that one. Nice, nice. It would be cool to be yeah. able to glow in the dark. I do agree. Yeah, really exactly. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. Paul, how about you? Uh, I would like to be a sleeper shark. Um, you know, they, they have a large range. They, uh, they can swim deep and they live for so long. You know, there's that study where they live. A couple hundred years, I think it was 350 years, give or take like 150 years. But um, yeah, I think that'd be cool. I could just kind of take it easy, swim around slowly, explore the deep sea over a couple hundred years. That sounds, sounds cool. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty, a pretty nice existence, I must say. Exactly. Just take, take on your time. Mm -hmm. um, but right, it has been so amazing to meet both of you to learn about your research and thank you so much for indulging me in my fascination with deep sea sharks i'm sure a lot of listeners will be feeling the same right now thank you for having me uh, isla i appreciate that and thank you paul for the amazing uh, uh knowledge that you have and that you share with us today thank you very much fantastic yeah thanks isla for having me and uh, yeah sophia pleasure to meet you i hope we keep in touch This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Nicola Poulos and the wonderful jingle that you can hear right now is by David Knight. An enormous thank you to Sophia and Paul for taking the time out of their day to come on the podcast and nerd out about deep sea sharks for us. You can find links to them and their work in the show notes of this episode, which you can find on the World of Sharks website. And a huge thank you to you at home for listening. If you like this episode, be sure to rate, review and subscribe. We really appreciate it when you do. And if you would like a question answered on the podcast, want to suggest a topic or just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch on Isla at SaveRCs.com or on social media by following at SaveRCs Foundation on Instagram and at SaveRCs on Twitter. Alrighty, have a awesome week and I'll see you next time.